All right, folks, you got a Bible, Exodus 10. We're going to wrap up this chapter tonight. This is ninth, the ninth plague, um, so we're one to go after this. Uh, but tonight, um, just the kind of the, the way this text kind of jumped off the page at me uh, when I began to study it, um, I felt like it was too fitting and too appropriate being uh, July 4th, um, right around the corner. I felt like it was too, uh, too uh, much of an opportunity to not... Um, to preach this in a way that I think the text leads itself to, but also in a way that would be very appropriate for us tonight um, I, and, and where we sit in the world and where we sit in the history um, of the world. So um, sometimes we read um, these passages in the Old Testament, and um, uh, you'll, you'll notice, that from, notice this from the way that I teach it and the way that we try to, to uh, come together around the Word. Sometimes we read these passages and we see that there is a clear opportunity for, opportunity for comparison. You know what I mean? That you'll see something that, hey, we ought to do just what they did, right? We ought to follow this example or we ought to imitate this as close as we can. But sometimes there's an opportunity to maybe see something that we shouldn't do again, right? Or something that we don't have to do the same way anymore because of how things have changed um, through the New Testament, through Jesus, and how the contrast between the old and new kind of leads us to take from the example, but do so in maybe a different way than just a straight transfer. Um, So sometimes there's a contrast as in, hey, the way things worked back then, they don't work that way anymore, but we can still learn from the text, and God intends us to learn from the text, but just filter it through the new. So uh, you'll notice that as we go through the Old Testament, sometimes we read passages where it's a clear, hey, this happened, we should do it as well. Or this happened this way, but it doesn't work that way anymore. And that's why it's very important to be discerning uh, as we read the Bible. It's very important that we um, be a part of a church where it's taught and where the, uh, um, where the Bible, as it says it should be, it's rightly divided, right? Where we can be led and, under, and, and understand the Scripture as God would intend it through the filter of Jesus, through the understanding that Jesus gives us. Um, and, and, and the Bible in the New Testament... Um, the Apostle Paul looks back on these Old Testament stories, especially the stories, um, the accounts uh, from history. The Bible looks back on these, uh, these examples, these stories, and this is what Paul says about them. Now these things happened to them, the Jews, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. So that's from 1 Corinthians 10, chapter, uh, chapter 10, verse 11. So Paul says clearly, these things happen for our example so that we can be instructed. Sometimes it's for comparing. Sometimes it's for contrasting. Sometimes it's for we ought to do the same thing. Sometimes it's for or so that we might not do the same thing. You, I hope you understand kind of where we're going with this. Now, obviously, um, I think the comparison um, idea is easy to follow um, because when we reread the Old Testament, it's the same God, right? He, uh, same God that we see in the New through Jesus. He was God and, and, and uh, ruling over Israel. Um, the same God from the New is in the Old. Um, he is still sovereign. He is still good. So we can always find those um, passages in the Old Testament and compare how God was then and, and see that he's the same way now and learn from that example, learn from that precedent. Um, when we read the Old Testament, we're, we, we can understand that God's way is still right. His will is still best. So if God said it, 
then, it's still right now. If God's will was that then, it's still the best for us to follow that will now. And we learn from the Old Testament over and over again, following God always proves greater than the alternative. doesn't matter what the alternative is, right? And it's not always that the alternative is just vile and sinful. It's just not His best, right? So we learn from the Old Testament, and we can learn from these stories that God's will, God's way, following God always proves greater than, better than any alternative. Any story in the Old Testament where you see someone who disobeys God and they suffer for it, we can learn, hey, we better not disobey God because we'll probably have to pay consequences for those disobedience, right? We, all, we can learn from the Old Testament stories of someone who obeyed God and was better off for it, and we can say, wow, they obeyed God, they were blessed for being obedient, so we ought to follow suit because we can expect the same. But there's also examples where somebody obeys God and they suffer. They obey God and they are persecuted. And yet they remain steadfast. And we take from that story, take from those stories, that sometimes obedience brings consequences, right? They bring, it brings persecution. It brings um, opposition. Yet we are to remain steadfast because we know that following God always is better than the alternative. Even if it costs us something, it won't cost us as much as the opposite. We can learn from these and we should compare ourselves to these Old Testament examples and emulate and follow their models. But, but there are some texts that are best understood in contrast. And by, by that I mean uh, when we, we talk about these stories carefully and I try to make it very clear, clear um, anytime we encounter an Old Testament passage, for example, when we find them seeking a sign or praying for um, a sign or waiting on a sign. Now, I'm very uh, uh, quick to say, hey, we as New Testament Christians, we should not emulate that. The Old Testament saints would always pray for a sign and wait on a sign and expect a sign. But we as New Testament Christians, we know better than to live like that because we don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. So that's an example of when we read the Old Testament and we see those stories of throwing the fleece out and things like that. It's not to say they weren't in God's will. We just have seen things and know things in a full and better light. Uh, So we can learn that the New Testament teaches us that We don't seek signs. We walk by faith. Jesus is the only sign and assurance that we need. So again, that's why it's important to understand that sometimes the Bible, we should look through these stories with a different lens. Anytime, for example, that we read the Old Testament, um, that we see that there is severe judgment and no mercy at all. Um, We have to look through the New Testament lens and understand that thankfully... Thankfully, God's first response to sin in the world and in our lives, much like it was in the Old Testament, or maybe contrary to the Old Testament, God's first response to our sin is not judgment, but rather grace. The cross and resurrection promise us and mean to us that God's default response to our sin is mercy and not wrath. But that wasn't always the case in the Old Testament, was it? There's that one example because of how the law was written and because of how the rules were were, uh, enforced. That one story of that man who literally picked up sticks on the Sabbath and they didn't know what to do with him. So they stoned him because that's what the law said. And they didn't have a way of interpreting it. They didn't have a way of showing mercy. They did what the letter told them to do. But we understand the New Testament gives us mercy when we maybe and truly deserve wrath because of what Jesus did for us. On the cross. Now, 
Those are just a few examples, and the reason why I want to, wanted to make a, a distinction between comparing and contrasting, because tonight's text gives us a little bit of both. There's room to compare, but there's also room and a necessity to contrast and say, hey, it's not the same for us as it was for them. So we're going to talk a little bit more about Israel versus Egypt, as in opposing each other, um, and, and what this tension meant for them, and how this analogy relates to our role in the world as the church, and how our placement reflects Israel's in some way, but also is very different to Israel's in others, other ways. This is very important because we often translate Israel's role against the other nations and against the world, and we often translate that to the church, right? So as Israel was in the world, the church kind of assumes that role. And often we kind of drop and drag the way Israel did things. We should do things. The way Israel was facing the world, we're facing the world. In In some ways that's true. In other ways it's not the same. It isn't always exactly as it was in the Old Testament. So right off the bat, I want to make a distinction that is very important that you all have heard me talk about before. We've all talked about plenty. We know this. But I want to make this distinction because this is very important. The Old Testament... The Old Testament is God's covenant with Israel, right? It's not God's covenant with any other nation. Now, there are elements of the Old Testament. There are elements of the Old Covenant that are still in effect. But there are elements of the Old Covenant that were shelved as soon as Matthew started. As in, from Genesis to Malachi, they had jurisdiction. But as soon as the New Covenant started, the Old was put away. There are parts of the Old Covenant that still are in effect. As as in God's promise to Abraham, the promise to Israel, the promise about the land, the promise about the people, those are still in effect. But the Mosaic Covenant, the law and its binding nature over people and in the way it deals with sin, those have been replaced with a much better covenant. And I hope that's good news to you tonight. The, 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 we, we, we talk about Israel in the Old Testament and the Abrahamic covenant. God's covenant with Abraham is absolutely still in effect. But is it at the expense of the rest of the world? Now hear that very clearly. In the Old Testament, God had a covenant with Israel that meant as long as Israel is prosperous, it doesn't matter what the rest of the world goes through. Sometimes it was at the expense of the rest of the world. But we understand based on the new covenant, the New Testament, God's covenant with the world, that God is not against the world as it seemed he was in the Old Testament. That just because God is still for Israel, it doesn't mean that God is against the world because the New Covenant says God is for the whole world. Now, you'll read in Revelation that Israel still plays a very important role in the end days, in the end times. Israel is still a place of refuge, but for the whole world. And its importance in the grand scheme of, 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 of prophecy and, and eschatology is insofar as it is the future home for all nations and the future capital for all nations to come and worship and, and, and find their identity from. But again... All that is operating under the new power of the new covenant. So it's very important to understand that any elements of the old covenant that remain in effect only do so under the authority of the new covenant. And if the new covenant says, hey, we don't do that, do it that way anymore, we're free from the old. We're no longer to look at things through the lens of the old. And that's why it's so important to see things through the new covenant and understand what the new covenant teaches and what it stands for. So 
I hope that makes sense. I hope it doesn't leave us too confused. There's, and I want to make this very clear. There is no salvation for anybody, including Israel, apart from Jesus. And I think sometimes people, up, people talk about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and they talk about Israel kind of like it's on an island. I'm not saying God does not have a covenant with Israel. I'm not saying that God does not have a special blessing for the Jews and, 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 up, and upon the Jews. But there is salvation found in nobody other than Jesus. So nobody's nationality, nobody's ethnicity, nobody's heritage gets them into heaven. Jesus is the only way you get to God. Whether you're a Jew whether you're a Gentile. And that's very important. The inclusion of the land of Israel in Revelation is only lip service from, apart from the Jews having placed their faith in Jesus. It doesn't mean anything if they don't place their faith in Jesus. So no one is getting saved because of their ethnicity or their heritage. Nobody. But God keeps his promises. And the land of Israel will indeed play a role in the future. And the prophecies show that. And I don't want anybody walking out of here saying God doesn't care about the Jews anymore. That's not part of the covenant anymore. That's not what I'm trying to say. Now, that being said, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, we see, um, in the Old Testament, Israel is often in an, in an against-the-world position. But the New Testament positions the world in a for-the-world position. So that's what the whole point of this, this whole uh, pro, uh, prologue tonight. Both Israel and the church share in having the world against them, right? The world was against Israel. The world's against the church in a lot of ways. But the response is what's unique because Israel often fired back at the world. But the church is told that's not the case for us. The Old Testament positions Israel as against the world, but the church positions, the New Testament positions the church as for the world. And I hope that we're all tracking with that. Yes, the world was against Israel. So naturally, Israel fought back, but that's not the case for us. And Jesus makes it clear and, and just makes a distinction that we'll look at a little bit later. But first off, I want to read these few verses um, and see what the text, um, kind of where the text leads us, um, and then it'll kind of lead us into this against the world, for the world talk that we've, we've already teased out. So Exodus chapter 10, verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go and serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Let your little ones go with you. But Moses said, You must also give us sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may go and sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also shall go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And even we do not know what, with what means, with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said, Get away from me. Take heed to yourself and see my face no more. For in, for in the day you shall see my face, you shall die. And listen to Moses' very strong words. You have spoken well. I will never see your face again. So Moses speaks a, a statement of judgment against Pharaoh. And the distinction between Israel and Egypt, darkness and light... The light serves as a way of judging Egypt, as a way of putting the nail in the coffin on their destiny. 
Now, we'll talk more about that in a minute. But God sent a plague of darkness that sent that a really powerful message. Um, and when we think about how Egypt had responded to God's message so far, how Pharaoh had responded to God, Pharaoh was thought to be the stand-in or the representation of Ra, the sun god. So you can imagine how ironic it was, how poetic it was for, from God's perspective, that the sun god couldn't keep the light shining. The sun god who thought that he was, or they thought was represented by Pharaoh, the sun was overtaken and darkness swept over the land. They had been in a spiritual darkness for a long time. God gave them over to this spiritual condition and their physical condition reflected what they were going through in their hearts. So you can really see this as an act of mercy, kind of, because God allowed their circumstances to reflect what was going on in their hearts, that they, God allowed their outside to show them what it was like on the inside. God took away the false sense of hope that they had, allowing Egypt to experience the raw nature of their spiritual condition. Now notice in verse 21, it says they could feel the darkness. Maybe you've been in a darkness like that before. Uh, literally the word feel there means to be suffocated, or oppressed, or pressed by something in a violating way. Uh, this could very well speak of the psychological effects of being under such stress in these uncertain conditions. It was so dark, and things were so uncertain, and all these plagues piling up on top of each other. The, the way they felt was really their kind of their the way it was dealing with their psychological, uh, their, their, their mindset, their, their mental mentality and all this. They were just really at their wits' end, and the, the, the darkness felt like it was closing in on them, as claustrophobic as that would be. Egypt was the land of light and heat, and now it was rendered pitch black. There was no doubt, uh, this was no doubt a very heavy burden of anxiety and fear. And, and, and we'll get into more uh, on this next time, but this was really a prelude to the final plague um, that comes at midnight on the third day, third, the third day of darkness uh, at midnight, God would bring the plague of death upon the land. So the darkness was a harbinger of death. And when the, it's like when the storm clouds roll in on the summer afternoon and it makes it seem like it's getting dark a little early, right? It was only much worse. So where there is darkness in our lives, we can always expect loss. I think that's what God is trying to say to us here. When it gets dark, spiritually, when we're in the dark and we refuse to go toward the light, we are only bringing judgment on ourselves. And the text tells us that there was light in the land. In fact, it was light in the dwelling of the Jews. So in this land of Goshen, this camp where the slaves were at, honestly, the light was shining, yet nowhere around it would the light break through. I think this is kind of what John wrote about in John 3 after Nicodemus and Jesus had that conversation that we all know so well. John says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Now, John wants to make it, wants to make it very clear that the light came into the world because the, God loves the world and God sent light to the world because it was dark without him. So he sent the light to show the world that, hey, it doesn't have to be dark anymore because I'm here. But the reason why the world will be judged, the reason why anybody goes to hell, is not because God did not shine the light on them or God did not love them. It's because they did not receive or respond to the light that God gave. So to refuse the light and accept the darkness is to bring judgment on yourself. John says, 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. Because the only solution when facing light as a, sinful, as a sinner is to either confess your sin and get out of the darkness or to say to the, to the light, I don't want what you have to offer because you're afraid of being condemned and being uh, exposed. This kind of tells us that darkness always leads to loss, but the hope of the gospel is that the light is brighter and can heal, can correct, and can lead anybody out. So while we wind up tonight, I want to talk about the light that Israel served as and what it meant then and contrast it to what it means for us as the church. God made a distinction in the Old Testament between Israel and the rest of the world. He picked Abram out of the Semitic world. He, Abram was a son of Shem, a, Shem, a Semite. Uh, we still use that word today to refer to Jewish people. But Abraham was a Semite. Um, but God said, hey Abraham, I'm cutting you off from your heritage. I'm going to give you a new, a new ethnicity. I'm going to start a new nation from you. I'm, your descendants are going to take on a new identity under your banner. So over time, God implemented a few very specific things under this banner of Abraham, under the future banner of Israel. And what made the Jews so distinct were three things. Circumcision, their law, and the way they were to worship. Circumcision was a physical mark that signified they were a different people and they were in the family of God through a very distinct and unique way. The law made them a very distinct people when it comes to their morals and it comes to how they dealt with each other socially. And their worship made them spiritually distinct. Now, this was all about creating, uh, establishing a new way of communicating to and understanding God. And, and God was really giving them a new platform, a new standard in a new model. God was really introducing a new platform to the world, a new standard to the world, and a new model to the world. The new platform was, you don't come to God based on what you do. You come to God based on who you are. As in, you are a child of God. If you were a Jew, you were in the family of God. You were not in God's kingdom because you obeyed your way in. You were in God's kingdom because He adopted you in. And that's the way he still works today. The new standard is very important uh, because God wanted to make the Jews stand out as different people, as people that had different morals, people that had different standards. And if you read the Old Testament law, as archaic as it may seem in our day and age, it was so revolutionary in its time. Women and children were given a status, elevating, elevated their status. The value of all people were brought up by the Old Testament law. And it was a way of showing the world, hey, we're different than you. We want, we want our behavior to stand out and to reflect our beliefs. And the model was that God is unseen. He's not confined to a certain location or a certain shrine. He is not built or carved in our image, but we are made in His image. And worship is not about us, it's about Him. We are trusting in what He's done, not trying to get Him to do something on our agenda. We're leaning into His agenda. And this is what it meant to say that Israel was a light. Because it was to shine this new platform, this new standard, this new model to the rest of the world. To show the rest of the world, your way is wrong and the only way that's right is Israel's. God said in Isaiah 49 concerning Israel, I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. But, and this is very important, 
Because in the Old Testament, we see that Israel butts heads with other nations, don't they? They butt heads with Egypt. They butt heads with Syria. They butt heads with the Philistines. They, they lock horns with the Babylonians. They lock horns with the Persians. They're fighting wars against all these opposing nations, don't they? And it was all to show these opposing nations that thought they were large and in charge, that thought their gods and their ways were better. It was to show the world that Israel had a God that was superior and Israel had a platform and a model and a standard that was better. And it was to show the rest of the world that nobody's way is right but Yahweh's. But, it's very important, God's plan wasn't to add other nations to the old covenant, but to bring a new covenant to all nations. So in saying that, the old covenant and the old covenant model of God in one nation was never His long-term plan. It was just a temporary way of getting the world's attention until He had everything in order to where He could roll out a new covenant in a new way with a new Savior. So whereas the, often in the Old Covenant, the nations that opposed Israel were cut off and destroyed to show that God kept His promises to His own, but also because God was protecting Israel from the worldly attacks that were no doubt trying to prevent His ultimate plan, which was the New Covenant, which was to bring the whole world under His rule and reign. And this is what I want to draw one last notion of contrast. Notice at the end of this chapter, Moses says to Pharaoh, you will never see my face again. Israel's light brought judgment to Egypt. But that's not what our light does to the world. This is so important that I want to close on this for about the next five, ten minutes. Israel's light brought judgment to Egypt. But the church's light is to bring salvation to the world. The light in Egypt showed them that there was, they were wrong and they were judged. But our light is not supposed to do that. Our light is meant to show there is salvation found and can be found in the world. Now, our light isn't to make us better or too good for the world. The idea that our light has set us apart stands like it did for the Jews. We are to show the world that our platform is different, our standard is different, our model is different. Our platform is based on faith. Our standard is based on doing things in love, that we do things because we love God and we love people. Our behavior reflects that we love God and that we love people. We act by faith. We act in love. And we do everything through Him for His glory, for His honor, for His kingdom's game. But we also do all this for the good of the world, for the love of the world. Moses' last words to Pharaoh was, you'll never see me again. But Jesus' last words to the world before he ascended was, I'm sending the church to you. Right? Moses' last words to the world was, you'll never see us again. You're going to drown next time you see me when you come across the Red Sea. But Jesus' last words to the world before he ascended were this. He speaks to the disciples. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you that you might be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. So what is the difference there? One was a message of judgment, but Jesus is, gives an invitation, doesn't he? He gives a commission to the church to go and spread the gospel to the world. And y'all know this. What, did Jesus, what was Jesus' first sermon to the church when he gathered his disciples on that hill? When he said, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor, blessed are the, uh, the merciful. What was, his, what was his big conclusion to that 
First sermon. He says to the church, you are the salt of the earth. You are the reason why judgment will not come on the earth because God sees you as the preservative. And you best keep your salt, you best stay salty, you best keep your flavor, lest you lose your effectiveness. He said, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. As in, you are seen, you are visible, and you ought not to retreat. But you are to stay in that visible position where you shine. You do not put yourself under a basket to be hidden, but you stay lit so that all in the dark house can see. Therefore, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So again, this is not about building up a single nation. It's about building up the kingdom of heaven. So I think it's important that on this holiday week, when we're thinking about our nation, what do we do to make it the best it can be? How do we win these back? Or how do we keep from losing this? So how can we be the light? How can we be the salt in a world that is decaying? How can we be a light in a world that is dark? How can we be a place in a people of refuge in a world that is hurting? Jesus said He would be with us. He said, I will empower you. So we don't have to be afraid if we're, not, if we're, if we're to do this or not. He says we're to do this. If religion has made us hesitant to do this, shame on religion. If politics makes you hesitant to do this, shame on your politics. If you study the gospel and study Acts, we learn so much. They are always making a difference, weren't they? They were always going about making a difference much in contrast to how churches and religion handles itself today. We often are so interested in making points, aren't we? We're interested in winning the arguments much less than winning somebody's heart. But here's the point. The heartbeat of the new covenant is making a difference in the world. It's not about making a point. It's about making a difference. God sent witnesses to accompany His Word for a reason. The human element of love is inseparable and so important when effectively communicating the gospel. If God wanted everybody just to get it on a three by five, He would have sent it in the mail. But He sent people to love people while they preach and model the gospel. That's why when Jesus uh, came across Matthew, He didn't judge Matthew, but He invited him to dinner, right? Peter and the rest of them, I don't want to go into a tax collector's house. Jesus said, well, I'm going, and y'all can stay out if you want to, but I'm going to have dinner with a man that I love to show him that he can be one of us too. That's why when Paul went to Mars Hill, he didn't preach a sermon against idol worship. Of course he could have. But no, he preached a sermon for Jesus and for the resurrection to bring the people around. So consequently, making a point is so easy and especially, you know this, when you get in a church, it's so easy to rally everybody up and everybody claps and shouts and laughs and cheers because making a point is easy and it's safe. But y'all know me, we are to be about making a difference. You feel better when you make points. You get crowds when you make points. Making a difference takes a long time. Making a difference makes people doubt where your, where your true allegiances lie. But making a difference is about loving people, and that's where I want to be, and that's who I want to be, and that's who we want to be. It's easy to throw a hand grenade at somebody and say, you know what, this is right, y'all are wrong, I'm out of here. But that's not what we do. 
Listen, conversations are not compromises. It's okay to compassionately find a common ground with somebody and show them what makes you different and love them even if they are different. The apostles were often at odds with people they agreed with the most, weren't they? Because they loved people they disagreed with too much to build a wall and mistreat them. They never worried about guilt by association. You never see Jesus worried about somebody judging him because who he was hanging out with, right? In fact, it was the Pharisees that were hypocritical when they wanted Pilate to kill Jesus. They wouldn't even go in his house. Oh, we can't come in, Pilate, because we'll be unclean if we get in your presence. But hey, could you still kill this guy before we see you? What kind of hypocrites are that, right? And you know this, Jesus always led his disciples away from debating people. Don't get distracted arguing and being in senseless, distracting and detracting conversations. They always tried to trap Jesus. He would never do it. He would never engage. Another thing, they never held outsiders to standards that outsiders didn't ascribe to. They never expected non-Christians to act like Christians. But they absolutely expected Christians to act like Christians. We spend so much time getting angry at the world for not, listen, not, living like they're supposed, not living like us, and yet we don't even do what we're supposed to do half the time. You know why this is so important? And what, made the new, what gave the New Testament church so much power and so much freedom? The disciples never got angry at the lost world. They remained compassionate and devoted to it. We get so angry at the world for being lost, we lose our compassion and our motivation, don't we? The New Testament, Paul in Colossians 4 says this, Let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt. Full of grace and seasoned with salt. Christianity changes the world not because of billboards or protests or isolated churches, but by fearless, faithful, loving servants that have adopted the world that it may reject them. That in the ancient world, the Christians would go and take care for those that the world didn't take care of, that love those that the world didn't love. And you know how you became a Christian? You became a Christian because somebody flooded you with grace. And that was, there was something attractional. You weren't, just, you weren't sure you bought into everything about it, but you came because somebody loved you until you were just overwhelmed by that grace. You didn't feel judged, you felt loved. And even if you were convicted, you felt convicted in a way that made you want to be better and be different. So to wrap all this up, here are three things that I think we as a, Christ, as a church ought to prioritize in how we, to be, how we are to be the light. We, we need to prioritize making differences, not points. If it, It's easy to shut somebody down by making a point and they'll walk away from you thinking, well, that guy thinks he's better than me. Let's be people that make differences when it might be easier to make a point. Also, let's not be afraid. Let's not fear guilt by association. I don't mean go out and sin with people. I mean don't fear crossing that line where you might be uncomfortable because just because you're associated with something that might not be what you're comfortable with, if it's a way of loving somebody and a way of going to where they're at and showing them, hey, God loves you, I love you, we're here for you, and I'm not afraid of you, and God's not afraid of you, that's a way of bringing people the gospel, and that's what we ought to be doing. I don't care what people say. Well, you know, did you see what he did? I don't, hey, if it brings the gospel to people, I'm not afraid of being judged by association. Number three, we ought not to judge the world. We ought to let our light shine to the world. 
Now, you can't shine if you're living in sin. So that's one thing the church better get right. We ought to obey, but also to shine. If we always got these three things right, the light would never go out, and the world would never get so dark that there wasn't a reason for hope. So always remember these two things. God's default approach is mercy, not wrath. So that should influence your default approach. How does God look at the world? What is God's default approach toward the world? Mercy, not wrath. Mercy, not wrath. Grace, not guilt. Salvation, not judgment. So if God's default approach is mercy, not wrath, our default approach should be for, not against. What are you for? Someone comes up to you and says, you know, you're all the time talking about what you're against, what you're against. What, what are you for? Do you, do you know the answer? I'm for Jesus, and I'm for your good. And we ought to always be preaching what we're for, not so much what we're against. Because what we're for takes care of what we're against. If God's default approach is mercy, not wrath, our default approach should be for the world, not against Open, not shut. Grace is always for. We know grace, so we should show grace. We should shine. Always. Amen? Amen. The world never saw Moses' face again. And from Exodus chapter 10 all the way to Malachi chapter 4, it was just God and Israel. But God opened the door back up to the world in Matthew chapter 1. And that's why we're in here. That's why we're here tonight. Because God shined the light on the rest of the world. He prepared it all for us in the old. And we're very grateful for that. We're very fortunate for that. But that's all the more reason why we've got to get our light as bright as it can be. And love and show the world the grace that we have found to be so amazing. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much uh, for this lesson and, this, uh, and these instructions about how we, got, we can make a difference in our world. Father, help us to not be so quick to make a point when we could so much more effectively make a difference. Father, help us to not be afraid of, of being guilty by association. Lord, if it means that we're loving people and it means that we're showing people the gospel and modeling the gospel to people and showing love, God, help us to value that more than we value what religion says of us or what some political group says of us. Father, help us to not judge the world, but love the world. Help us to make sure that we as God's people are living right so that the world might see there is a difference. There is a distinction. There is a new standard, a new model, a new platform that they are invited to join. Father, thank you so much for the freedom you've given us as Americans, as Christians in our country. Help us to understand that our light ought to be as bright as ever so that we might reach the most that we can. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.